paper near you today, and I want you to write down a couple of words. Ideally, this would be one of those note cards in the pew in front of you, which you can then put on your refrigerator or, I don't know, your mirror or somewhere. I want you to write down the words, you are not alone. I want you to put those words somewhere in your life this week. And I want those words to remind you of kind of everything I'm going to say at once, but also a little bit about this, this story I'm going to tell now, which um, I don't know how much you know about what I do. I do a lot of stuff. You know, I'm your pastor, but I've also got my finger in a lot of other things, mainly under the heading of what I would call publishing. Publishing. I'm not really in politics within the Missouri Senate. I'm not running for office, but I'm definitely a publisher in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And I've been doing it on YouTube for over a decade now, but I've got other stuff going on as well. And, and the long and short of all of this is that I've been given some opportunities that I have used over the last three years to try to enhance our life together at St. Paul by making the publishing that I do locally connected to this place. And part of that involves the stewardship of, the leasing of, and management of a completely different facility that's just a block and a half away. Uh, it's called the Hebron Collegium. It's a retreat center for biological Christian males. And someday, God be praised, a, a gap year Bible school for men. It's served in both capacities already. Um, the reason uh, that I am bringing all of that up, this idea uh, about the Hebron Collegium, and so I can emphasize to you the promises of God that you are not alone. And you've seen this at St. Paul in the last couple of years. As people are coming through this congregation who really don't belong in Rockford at all. Or maybe they're just passing through. But they know that what's happening at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Rockford has a lot to do with the Sons of Solomon prayer discipline. Because that's what I've told them. And it's a fact, even if you don't practice that prayer discipline, nine psalms a day, a lot of the men in this congregation do, and it's blessing their lives, it's blessing their families' lives, it's changing their lives. And there are people all over the world now doing this who are going to come through this place just to say hello uh, to me or Gus or Titus or a number of the other guys who now are making those connections through this Hebrew Collegium thing so that we're very much not alone as a congregation in the Missouri Synod striving to build a future based upon what we believe to be true. Now, all of that is so I can again tell you this little story about the Hebrew Collegium, uh, which has a number of things. There's a, there's a wood shop with hand tools, and there's a theological library, and there's a jiu-jitsu mat. And uh, the jiu-jitsu mat's in an outbuilding that, that we call the threshing floor. And the threshing floor is a story about where the temple was built in David's time, but we'll leave that for some other time. Uh, the threshing floor is an outbuilding. It's not part of the main building. It's kind of big, and it used to have a security system on it from the previous owner, but that's not there anymore. And we live in Rockford, and I got to thinking about it a little bit, and I, I had an idea. And I'm not going to buy cameras just yet and put them everywhere. Anyways, no one's going to steal our jujitsu mats, right? It's not our problem. But you know, you know, vandalism occurs and all this. So, so I took a little note card. I didn't write "You are not alone." I just wrote "You are being watched." Period. And then I drew a little, a little upside-down triangle with two lines, which to me looks like a fox head, but actually looks like a smiley face too. So you know, the normal person is going to see you are being watched with a smiley face, and they're going to assume, well, I, I put it in the window of the threshing floor. If you ever look at it, you're going to assume 
there's a camera. And I, I was proven right as, I don't know, a couple weeks later, one of my kids is like, are there cameras? I said, why would you say that? Well, it says you're being watched. I said, yeah. No, there's no cameras. Now, I may someday put cameras in the threshing floor. That might be a wise, prudent thing. You know, trust God, tie your camel, as the, as the jihadists say. Um, but <laughs> uh, the fact is, I got angels watching the building for me. And anybody who, in a moment, is like, maybe there's a camera, I'll tell you what, the fear of God will do something more to you once you realize what I'm talking about. You steal from me, God gets you back. And that's what every Christian can believe all the time, by the way. Yeah. Angels are with you. They're watching over you. You're not alone. God is with you. I'm sure, I'm sure, but maybe not. Times have changed. You've heard the poem, Footprints. I, I won't quote it to you. It's on a lot of church walls. You go visit places, you'll see this little poem. It's, it's quaint. It's quaint. And it goes something like this. I'll do the, the Pastor Fisk version, right? Um, I was walking on the beach. I love the beach. I like to surf. And I noticed Jesus was beside me. I said, Jesus, where you been? He said, what are you talking about? I was like, look behind me. Right now there's two tracks of sand. But, you know, I see times back there when I was alone. I looked around. There's only one track of sand there. There's only one set of footprints. Where were you? And the poem says, I was carrying you. It's a nice little twist. You know, it's, it's not a bad poem, really. It's, it's a little chintzy. It doesn't necessarily belong on the sanctuary wall, right? But the point of the poem is so very, very true. But it's precisely at the moments that you believe God is not with you, that he is most fulfilling his promises to you. And you don't need to look any farther than the cross of Jesus Christ to believe this is true. Since he is your master and you are his disciple, you are going to be made to be like him. And if there was ever a man in the whole history of the world who was alone, it was Jesus on the day that he died. You heard it read moments ago, all his friends betrayed or abandoned him to the military group that was going to have him nailed to a tree. His own people walked by, spit, scoffed, laughed. The thieves next to him, and tells us again, didn't understand at all what was going on. He calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because Psalm 22, which is the first line, is about actually victory through waiting on God to silence your enemies. So he's not like he's faithless. He believes. He knows. But he still, like a man, feels pretty much, and I'm going to use this word on purpose because it's what it means, he was damned alone on the cross. In our place, right? That's the good news, right? This is, this is the gospel, uh, that the blood which he shed, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, right? All this. Um, Jesus was alone more than anyone ever has been because it was the will of God to crush him. And it was the father's judgment that he felt, not the devil's. It was the father's judgment that he felt. And yet through all of that, because he is the eternal son of God, of one substance with the Father. He was never, ever, ever, ever actually as God alone. And this is kind of one amazing thing. Like go, go one deeper. Nobody ever, ever can be alone. Not even, not even God. Because God is always three persons. I know that the Trinity is a confusing little thing and I don't want to get into a diagram this morning. But, but again, like God's not alone. God is in a community with himself in his three persons at all times. So if, if God's never alone, how are you going to be alone? 
Since God's always with you, one way or the other, even if you're evil, to hold you in place and harden your head more until you kill yourself, uh, or because he chooses you uh, to bind you in and not let you get too far out of control so he can raise you from the dead. God is always with you. And the angels are always, well, on his side, unless it's the demons that are against him. And again, you're not alone, even with the, with the demons, right? I mean, uh, it, when you're surrounded by a horde of demons, so what would you think? Can you picture it? You're on some fantasy battlefield. You got your big old sword or whatever. You're feeling pretty good. You're chopping through the zombies, yeah? And then there is a million demons all around you breaking down on you. Now put yourself there, not a video game, for real. As a man, guys, what are you feeling at that moment? And are you believing at that moment that every demon screaming in your face is in fact a mask that your God is wearing so that you will learn not to fear? Because you'll know that even the demon screaming in your face is on a leash and God just goes, smashes his head whenever God wants to. God's never going to let the evil one man or beast, do anything to you that God hasn't planned. Precious in the sight of Jesus is the death of his saints. That's Psalm 116, a truth we could ponder. Can you imagine the day of your death not being a bad day? What would that look like? What would that look like to you? I mean, everyone's trying not to have it happen the bad way. What would it look like if it was the way you wanted it? You know, I'd fall asleep. Okay. What about like, and can, can you get this one? Okay. I'm a policeman for a moment. And I'm running after a bad guy. And I'm thinking about the Psalms as I go. I'm like, dear Jesus, help me stop this bad guy. That's my job. So I do. I come around a corner and pop, pop, pop. Oh, I'm, I'm dying. Dear Jesus, have mercy. And just like that, I'm awake. My body's restored to what it should be. I'm clothed in an armor of righteousness. And I'm watching the children of Zion stream home to the feast from the tower where I am a sergeant. That sounds like a good way to go, doesn't it? Any way you die is a good way to go, Jesus. Because what comes next is more than you can imagine. I suggest you just start trying to imagine it. I just did. I don't know that that's what will happen, but that's an imagination, right? I'm, I'm, I'm using my heart to hope and to know that I've been promised certain things that will be there no matter what. And on those things, I can build whatever imagination I want because the principles will always be the same. You know who will be streaming in on that day to Zion? My family. Well, what about my brother or my sister who aren't there? Well, then they're not my family that day, are they? Because my family is going to be there. We, the church, the people of God, assembled and shepherded by Christ our King, we will, we will be there. And so again, you're not alone. The day of your death is a day of victory. And you can see that now, long before it comes, and prepare. What, what are your last words? Have you thought about it? Who's going to be there? What do you want him to hear? One of my favorites ever, I got to tell you, the pastor, he's still a pastor. His name's Tom Anger. He's great. But his last words are going to be, see us, suckers. No. Uh, he laughs about it because he's like trying to make the joke. Look, it's going to get better. It's going to get better. Uh, you're not alone. You're never alone. Elijah in the story on the mountain finds this out, right? In, in a powerful, powerful way, uh, wherein, uh, he's given all the natural glory of God and then some. I mean, can you imagine a wind that breaks rocks? I can't even see such a thing. A laser beam, maybe. Wind? 
breaking. This is supernatural power beyond imagination. And then there's the earthquake and, and you know, the fire. I mean, this isn't a couple of candles, right? Like this is like a like dragon's breath from the stars barreling down on the mountain. He's in the cave. You know, as you hear, once he hears the voice, what's he do? He covers his face. He's going out into like a smoldering ruin out there. I thought I was alone and crying for help, God. You send an earthquake and a whirlwind to destroy the place around me. I don't want to be here anymore, he basically says to him. And God, in a sense, says, that's okay. He doesn't quite say you're right, but he definitely says, yeah, it's a hard walk here, Elijah. And all the bit about Hazael and all this is really cool history. But the point of it is the end of it, where he says there's 7,000 who have not bowed the knee. And you can make that 7,000 a literal number if you want. It still means more than literal things, which is seven, the number of the Sabbath, the number of being set apart, the number of holiness in God's sight, times 10 times 10 times 10, or 10 cubed, a 1,000. So a 1,000 is the ultimate 10. It's God's 10, right? Three cubed, 10 times 10 times 10, is the number of the Trinity, like we just talked about. And then 10 is the number of completion. I mean, if you have a test, generally there's 10 questions, right? Or you score a perfect 10, or there's the 10 commandments. Right? 10 is a, a number of completion. So 7,000 is a way of God saying to Elijah, I have the perfect number of who I have set apart alive right now. And you don't even know who they are, but I'll tell you what, they've never bowed the knee to Baal. Which I suggest to you, living in ancient Israel, that wasn't as easy as you might think. It probably had to do with where you could shop. A lot, I would imagine. Because idolatry is always about the money. It's always about the Benjamins. I mean, the picture's on the money for a reason. Uh, so uh, Elijah feels alone, but God says, you're not. There's towns, there's communities, there's people. And what should you take from this today, St. Paul? And really, the world is listening on you too. What Take from this today uh, that we're not here, just me. I'm not just Elijah saying, where are you, God? We're here several, what, hundred strong? And we're one little tiny congregation of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod amongst several in this region. And the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod is one Lutheran church body faithful to the Bible amongst several in this region, believe it or not, even though there's another one not so faithful. Yeah? And, and the Lutherans are just one part of the Protestant Reformation of the Catholic Church. And there's a lot of those non-denoms around here, the Protestants. And then the Catholic Church is filled with Christians. Do you see how not alone we are in America if we just believe what we believe and talk about it? The issue is they got us to stop talking about it. They got us to be afraid. They got us to think we are alone. We're isolated. If I say Merry Christmas, somebody with a rainbow hat will get mad at me. And I wouldn't want that. Then I'd be a mean person. See the sins they make you believe in? They're not even sins. You feel bad over stuff that isn't even wrong. Meanwhile, they're doing great evil out there. And you're not alone. Seeing it, knowing it, frustrated by it. And I suggest that rather than try to get the Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church all together one afternoon for politics, why don't we all pray to the same God, the same prayers? Did I mention since the Solomon yet? Uh, it, it really is a goal I have to get us all to pray the same prayers because I think he'll answer them. Elijah is definitely one who prays the same prayers as those who came before him and as Elisha who will come after him. That's Elisha's whole request is whatever spirit you have inside of you, Elijah, that makes you talk, can I get twice as much of that? Right? 
double down on that. And there's a whole history of this. And of course, it leads to Jesus being the full fulfillment of it all. But now, again, we're kind of moving through a couple different pieces for the sake of you not being alone today. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause and just insert something right now. So it's going to feel a little from left field, but it's part of the whole set-apart growth that, that I'm aiming for this year specifically. Because this year, our set-apart main event is on Reformation Sunday. Uh, so we're celebrating Reformation on the day. We've done this before, but it doesn't always happen this way. Um, but I thought, hey, you know, maybe this is a good year to try to build reformation into set apart as the way we think about it. So every year when we talk about money once a year, because that way we don't talk about money all year. Also once a year, we talk about reforming the Catholic church, which starts with ours. Like the one we're in right now, there are things that need to be fixed in the building. That would be a reformation, right? Uh, But also maybe extends to uh, others in the Missouri Synod who don't believe what we believe or practice what we practice. I mean, reformation is important there. One way or the other, unity needs to come. And then this this goes even up to, and of course, I would include the actual Roman Catholic Church that I don't know why we gave up on convincing them that they're wrong, but I, I think really um, we might try. And I'm not talking about getting Roman Catholics to come to our congregation. I'm talking about getting Roman Catholics to believe that it's possible to call the Pope to repent and that they should do it. And believe it or not, there's a whole movement in Rome that's doing just that. Oh, why don't we just come along and shout with them, right? I encourage them, get them to pray the same songs. <laughs> Imagine it. It might be like God's actually doing it. It wouldn't be like God's actually doing it. That's how God does it. And it's a free gift to anybody who wants to pick up the sword. Pick up the sword. Now, those who pick up the sword. Let's look at Revelation chapter 7. Uh, what, a, what a fun thing this is. Uh, Revelation chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 1. Uh, we are in the seven seals. Uh, The word seal is going to come up here again with the same meaning, but referring to something different. And uh, it has nothing to do with, you know, the sea lion or or the coast, right? These seals are in the ancient world, uh, a piece of metal. You think of it as a stamp um, that has been carved in order to signify like a signet ring would be used to signify as a seal uh, the, the authority of the one speaking, right? And so you would take a letter. They had paper. <laughs> it was very expensive. But they, you write your letter down, and then you don't, you know, lick it. Or these days they have to pull off tabs. I grew up licking it. Uh, you, don't, you don't lick it and seal it and put the stamp on it. Uh, instead, you get some wax, and you melt it on, and then you, you put your signet in it. You sign it, signet, signature. It's all the same thing, right? Uh, you sign it with that seal. And then when someone gets it, if that's been cracked, they know it's tampered with. Because, you know, you can actually steam open a modern envelope and put it back together. You're not going to steam open the wax and put it back together without the signet. Very powerful ancient wisdom. They understood liars <laughs> uh, back then. They understood people who changed translations under your feet and all that, right? Uh, so, uh the seal is going to come up. There are seven signets or seals as wax markings on this giant scroll that's from God and from heaven that the lamb, who is Jesus, who's dead and alive. Like he looks like he's been killed, but he's fine. Uh, He's taking this from God. He's going to start cracking these seals open. And when it happens, 
all all hell's going to break loose actually like again literally i'm not i'm not cussing <laughs> i'm when i use those words in the pulpit please if you're like what did he say no really i'm not cussing i'm using the word the way the bible uses the word and indeed it talks about these things all hell does break loose when evil runs amok as demons take charge of people's spirits that's what happens you know, and, and to be afraid of the word, like it's a bad word. I mean, golly, they've shut us up so much. So the seals are being opened and things are going pretty bad. In fact, people are dying everywhere. Uh, but now here, verse, let's see here, uh, 12, you can see he opens the sixth seal. And it just gets really nuts. The sky is getting rolled up like a scroll. I uh, you know there's blood everywhere. People are shouting to the mountains to fall on them so that Jesus can't find them. I mean, this is not Jesus so meek, Jesus so mild at this point in history, right? That, that's how he came to save, how he comes to judge, is exactly the way the Old Testament portrays him, uh, which is righteously vindicating himself upon the people who hate him. That's not you, right? The people who try to stand against Jesus, that's who that is. And now after this, you... After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth so that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Just going to do that short. We could, we could take this one a long time, but what that means is that um, the earth shall not be destroyed until God decides to do it himself. And John saw that, that there are authorities who are stopping final destruction of the universe, even at man's hands, even climate change, cannot stop them from sparing the trees and the rivers, uh, which doesn't mean go throw stuff in your river, by the way. That would be stupid. Right? But, but it does mean don't believe the false religions when they make radical claims, not only about what's happening to the whole planet, but how they're going to fix it like Superman. Like, beware of the idiots because they do more damage than they realize. It's not about how they're all malicious and trying to kill us. It's about how they all think they're so smart and they're idiots and they actually do stupid stuff that gets people killed. This is also in the Bible. You can see it in the history of the kings. Up and down we go with elites who believe or don't believe. The, the angels that are at the four corners of the earth, earth is, the number four is the number of the earth, uh, the angels are making it so that the world shall not be destroyed. So that's the emphatic moment here at the start of this. The earth is going to endure until Jesus says no more. And then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. Which, there's an hour and a half of Ezekiel in that seal on the forehead. At least, if not more. And it's a huge, huge section in Ezekiel. It's really cool because the seal that gets put on the people in Ezekiel's time, actually in the vision, is a towel, which is their letter T, which even in the ancient world is the form of a cross. So these Israelites in Jerusalem who are not going to get killed by, the, by Babylon, part of it is they've got the cross on their forehead, actually. <laughs> it's like he planned it. Right, all along. And that's all right here uh, in this moment of the seal. We're not going to chase it. Let's just, let's just sit with baptism for a second. What is baptism? Well, it's water included in God's command and combined with God's word. 
Pretty simple, right? What is baptism? Um, Colossians chapter 2 talks about the seal of circumcision. Circumcision, not baptism, uh, is an old covenant sign of entry into the community, entry into the church. And it went for men and women. The women didn't have to have it done. But if your father was circumcised, well, then, then you were in. Right? And your brother, of course, would be circumcised as well. That seal of the covenant is really helpful in showing you what seals do. Right? They mark a distinction between things, inside-outside of a letter, or in this case, inside-outside of a people. And circumcision as the seal of the old covenant prefigures Colossians chapter 2. You can read it right there in the text. Prefigures baptism in the new covenant. And so without question, even if you believe it's just water and the word of God, and that means it doesn't do anything, which is a weird thing to say, even if you do believe that, nonetheless, it seals you before everybody else is a member of the Christian community. So even if you're coming up and making your bold decision for Jesus at age 15, because they didn't baptize you as a baby, everyone in the church now knows, oh, they're baptized, they're a Christian. They still teach you that's what it means, even though they don't believe it does it. Right? So I suggest most of our arguments are about, about baptism are arguments about modernism. They're about trying to understand miracles rather than believing what's obvious. What's obvious is that baptism brings you into the church of Jesus Christ. It's obvious obvious. Oh, you can't do it to babies. Okay, that's a different argument then. So if we have to disagree about it, let's disagree about you can't do it to babies because babies don't have faith, rather than baptism doesn't make you a Christian. Everybody knows baptism makes you a Christian. Everybody practices baptism like it makes you a Christian. It's a fact. It's a seal. Okay, now here, he heard the number of those sealed. So at least here it has the number of Christians. He heard the number of Christians, uh, and that number he heard was 144,000, which, while you're like 12, might seem like a lot, right? I saw this morning, I, don't, I never look at Twitter anymore, I just published it, but I saw a story about a guy, and I don't know if he's a congressman or if he just works in D.C. or whatever, but like they raided his house. You get this? They found $100,000 in gold bars. Um, this is all stuff he's basically stealing from his job in government. He's doing $100,000 in gold bars, $400,000 in cash. My first thought was, like, that ain't even that much. Like, you're doing all that work for $100,000? Really? I mean, do you pay bills? Do you know how far that goes? Not that far. What are they after? $144,000 is not that much. So what does it mean that the number of Christians sealed is only 144,000? Does it mean you better get busy being a real Christian or you ain't in? And there's places that teach that for sure. And if you don't know the Jehovah's Witnesses, that's part of their system. They've had to change because people got sketchy after a while. They're like, are you sure? It seems like we're not going to be saved. So they have like two paths to salvation now for Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, but let rest assured here, 144,000 is not that much if you're counting peanuts. Right? It's not. Um, but if you're doing biblical symbolic math, this is like the this number is like the superpower number. I mean, I, it pulls so much together in one moment. It's just like explosive because you don't just have again the number a thousand, right? Which I already said is God's God's working with a thousand. God is on it with a thousand. You don't just have a thousand or seven. Seven's kind of gone, but it's inside of two twelves. Two twelves. 
which has already been shown to us in the earlier part of the book is 24 elders around the throne of Christ. 12 plus 12 is 24. And we've been able to see in that space that this is a picture, Revelation 4, a picture of the entire church on earth, that these elders who are wearing the crowns, like a seal on the forehead, wearing the crowns, they cast down their salvation before Christ and acknowledge that he has got it. This is Old and New Testament. You can tie this, if you're really big in Revelation, to the two witnesses. The same idea as the two witnesses. I've met more than one crazy person who says, I think I'm one of the two witnesses in the book of Revelation. It's like, yeah, you're a crazy person then. Yeah, uh, because really, I mean, no, the, no the, the two witnesses are the Old and New Covenants. The Old and New Covenants. So 12 and 12 here, Old Covenant tribes, New Covenant apostles, no longer summed, not added, 24 elders, but now multiplied, produced, bearing much fruit, you might even say. So much more than 24,000, 144,000, Old and New Testament, every Christian, everyone say that has ever been, God's got it. I heard, God's got it. And then I turned and I looked, verse nine. Notice how there's a, a break there, a great multitude. That's true, but it stops you from seeing that between verse four and verse nine, there's a poem. And the poem goes, I heard and I saw. So don't stop after you hear 144,000. Go on and see a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb who sits on the throne. And all the angels were standing around, and all the elders, the four living creatures, they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped, saying, Amen. Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, honor, power, might to God forever. Amen. And it goes on, and I, I often will focus on what comes next, where uh, John will, will talk with one of the elders from earlier, and he'd be like, So, tell me about these these this army of white-clad, blood-stained peoples with palm branches. And, and he says, oh, these are the Christians who will never, ever be separated from God again. And he's going to wipe away every tear from their eye. You know, you know that line. You know, it's how it ends. Um, but rather than going all the way to the end, I want to I repeat again and dig in to the early part of that. So, so go back to verse 9. The multitude that no one can number from every, it says, nation, tribe, people, and language, <laughs> it's a fancy Latin word for tongue. Um, uh, there are four different listings there. And I think in our days where everyone's afraid of, do I have to say it with a high voice? Racism. Like, well, everyone's afraid of racism everywhere. The specter of it. Oh, no, Nazis. Um, the, the Church of Jesus Christ, we're not colorblind. Uh, but we love color. And it, it, it says it here. I mean, we, we just know that we're going to come from every nation. And the Greek word there is not nation state or global military power or industrialized bank federal system. The word nation there is the word ethnicity. It's not the exact word. It's an older word. It's 2,000 years old, but it's effectively the root. It's ethne. It's the root, ethnicity. To be a nation is to be these other three things, which is, where'd it go? I got to look at it. A tribe, 
a people and a language. Let me suggest to you the language is the most powerful of them. You want to talk about unifying anything, you got to deal with the language. The tongue with which we speak, when it is in harmony, is in harmony. And when it's in discord, it's in discord. And the promise of Pentecost is that translating the Old Testament and New Testament into the common language is a gift to the church forever to unify us in the midst of all other kinds of madness. Which is why reading the Bible is such an important thing. Because every Christian, no matter what color their skin is, is going to read the Bible. And if they don't, then they're very undisciplined. They're very undisciplined Christians. And an undisciplined disciple is a strange thing. It's an interesting duck. Yes, it's an interesting duck. So again, uh, tongues, languages. Now, peoples here, this is something that a lot of, uh, it, it would have been common to think of the peoples uh, before the American phenomena uh, of the Revolutionary War and actual you know, ethnic slavery, so obviously, you know, done by wicked men in our in our history. Um, but up to that, and then also you have this issue where World War II was kind of about being German, right? Like for some of them, it was kind of about being Japanese too, for some of them, and for many of them, it was about being American. So it's not like everyone's on different games, and yet the German peoples, you know, the the, the folk. I mean, you might even buy a Volkswagen that was started by Hitler for the folk because his, his task as a wicked you know, ruler, he obviously did wicked things, was actually to protect his people and he did that. That's why they liked him. He protected his people. He said, the way I protect you is we kill the other people, right? And so that's, that's what isn't really so Christian about him. Um, but the people were a people. They were a group that were like each other and not like others. Now, you can't have diversity if you don't have different peoples. And let me suggest to you, the great lie of American diversity is it doesn't want diversity at all. It wants uniformity. It wants you to be, no matter what color your skin, no matter what language you speak, no matter what heritage you come from, it wants you to be just like Hollywood makes you. And you can watch it happen to immigrants. It's kind of sad, actually, as their kids become more and more like our kids from two generations ago which means, of course, abandoning traditions and letting go of the faith, what they have, and, and all these kinds of things. Stopping being a people. Let me tell you another little story about a kingdom called Assyria. Assyria was a big, wicked, penal kingdom, but they ruled everything for like a thousand years because when you just don't let anyone fight back, and you're good at it, you can do whatever you want. And, and that's what they did. And their marketing campaign was, you mess up, we kill you badly. It hurts. Like That is their empire. And when they would come to you and conquer you and say, pay taxes or we conquer you, um, and you said, no, we don't pay taxes, when they conquer you, they would take you and they would, they would take you know, mom and dad and you'd settle way over there in, in this place and they'd take the kids and you'd go with this different mom and dad way over there in this place and you two can't even stay together at all. And they basically take the whole town and you maybe have one other person in the town you end up in as a servant the rest of your life. And they did that to everybody they conquered. So that every culture they conquered, gone. It's genius. That's how they stayed in charge. Nobody had any say in what was normal except for them. Now, the crazy thing about America is they got us to do it to ourselves. They got us to do it to ourselves. They didn't have to use hooks in your nose and, and swords. We pay for it. And I suggest you ponder and pray on that quite a bit. It's not a wonderful thing to be taken into slavery without your knowing. It really isn't. Um, 
<laughs> you are not alone is the point of this. And the fact that peoples exist is a big part of not becoming slaves. I'll say that too. To embrace the fact that you are a people is to be together against others. And when they come and they want to impose a tax on you, you can say no. You know, the people of Illinois would do good to continue saying no to what they call it, an inflationary tax they want to put on us. The thing where they can change it every year just because they want to and take more, right? Like we can say no to that. And as a congregation, you can get together out there in the narthex and say, hey, everybody, let's say no to more taxes. You're allowed to do that with each other. That's not my message to you as a Christian preacher lower taxes. But my message is own your city, own your house, your neighborhood, your street, own it. Not like, so you kick off everybody. No, own it with hospitality and love for the good of it. I mentioned climate change earlier. And I am a little concerned about what Robert Kennedy says about the streams of America and the value of the fish that you know, I know some of my kids catch over here. But I'm actually more concerned about the litter right there on Kilburn that's going to make its way into the river. So we must take care of our city. We must own our city because that's what it means to be a people. And we want to understand that in Rockford, there's a lot of different peoples. Each congregation's a people. Each church body's a people. Each set of neighborhoods is, is a people. And you then, as a Christian, are not alone there. Right? Especially when you meet people from other tribes. That's a good way to think of it too. Other tribes who are Christians. I mean, can you imagine you're in the desert and you're going along and you're a Christian, you're a sheik, you got all the camels, you got all the donkeys, you know, big train of people because you offer sacrifices to Yahweh in the morning and you come across in the middle of the space, there's a well and you're, you're there and there's another sheik and he also confesses the same you, God, you do, but he sings different songs and his wife looks really funny. What, what does that mean? Because without Christianity, it means your enemies. And inside of Christianity, it's, do you speak the name of Jesus? Yes, I do. Well, then you're trustworthy compared to most. It doesn't mean just because someone confesses Jesus, let them have your keys, right? <laughs> but, but it does mean that there is a distinction between Christians that even when our tribes are, are not the same, Baptist church down the street to the left, African-American, Baptist church, we are different tribes, but we're in Israel. We are until they say they're not, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, and then as different tribes, we can be a people compared to the rest of the people in this land who like to kill their babies. Right. See how this works? Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue, those are really good categories for thinking about your neighborhood and how you engage somebody who's different than you rather than racism, right? Oh no, maybe I'm racist, right? They've got everyone like afraid we're racist. Stop it. Join a tribe. You already got a couple. You're in a tribe. Own it. And lift up the rod and the staff. All those things. All right. So after tribes, thrones, people's languages, standing before the throne, palm branches in their hands. And then we're going to go on from there. Um, palm branches in their hands. I'm not going to tie us all the way to the Maccabean rebellions and, and how palm branches end up being there on the day that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday now, even though the Passover has nothing to do uh, with palm branches. There's a really cool story there. But the point of it, those palm branches are a mark of victory. They're a mark of victory. They're a mark of celebration of total triumph as David initially would come back into Jerusalem upon his colt, his donkey, which was like a war horse, 
or a Cadillac, maybe more like a Cadillac. Yeah, uh, he's coming in on his, you know, you know, they drive around in the limousines these days, right? They don't get sports cars; they have someone else drive them. So he's coming in on his donkey, and people are shouting, "Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord!" Right? And they're shouting that, and they're waving palm branches because all of David's enemies. What did he do every year? He went out to war against the Philistines. They've all been subdued. He never loses a battle. The land just gets conquered more and more. Not only then is that what they're waving when Jesus comes in, shows you where the people were. There were people in the crowds that scoffed at Jesus, but the majority wanted Jesus to be king. Think on it. And not only that, but the promise of the day of resurrection, more than that, the promise of right now, that this is you, this uncountable multitude. You have to wait to be there. It's here now. The palm branch in your hand is the tongue that has been redeemed to speak outside of your tribal dialect the word of God that changes everything. And again, every time you speak it, you're not alone. The angels are singing. And things start to happen around you. You start to notice stuff. You start to say, was that a coincidence? You know, and it's not as though you should be looking for God under every rock. Please don't. You know, if you're praying and a cloud covers the sun, it is not a sign. But if you're talking to someone and they never mention the name of Jesus, but they say they're a Christian, that is a sign. It's a sign that they don't have the word of God coming out of them. And that, that means they need it put into them, which means you should speak it. Whoever they are. Right? It's, a, it's, not, it's not a rocket science, but it is hard. Because you have to stop scrolling and stop entertaining and running and chasing long enough to think about what you're even thinking. Long enough to think about what you're planning to say, you know, maybe on the day that you die. No. I didn't answer that question after see you, suckers. Um, I don't have an answer for that one yet. What will I say on the day that I die? Um, for kind of to wrap up our last five, four minutes here this morning, I want to take us to Isaiah chapter 49 and kind of stamp on this one here too. That's on page 610, 609 of your pew Bible. We sang this as the introit. I'm going to be working more of the prophets and the Proverbs into our church service through the introit and through the gradual uh, so that we can have more exposure to words that I think are very encouraging and very much appropriate for our current moment in history. And <clears throat> That doesn't help. <laughs> Turn my head and the mic goes with me. Um, the, uh, uh, this section is a promise to the people of Israel of how it will be after God punishes the land they're living in. What they can expect trusting in him to be brought to pass for them. And I find that to be incredibly hopeful then. It, it doesn't mean, I, I cannot promise you, that whatever it comes to pass in the next 40 years, we're all going to live through it. I, sorry, it's 40 years, generation, I don't know. A lot of, we're all going to die. But what I can say to you is that the church won't. And that our children generally won't before us as we teach them the faith, which is the building of the church. And that even if they do die before us, this will only be to our praise of the God who has shown us the wisdom of loving the next world more than this one. Now, I find Isaiah's language to be a lot easier for imagining that than what I just said. What I just said was kind of theory-ish. Isaiah's language is just like, this is how good it's going to be. So I'm just going to read for a while here to you. And I, I may comment here and there. I'm going to try not to, though. I'm going to try to let Isaiah do it. He says, 
Listens to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord, Jesus Christ, called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away, and he said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I've spent my strength for nothing and vanity. And I think the quotation mark should end there, by the way, that that's what I said and that God says, yet surely my right is with Jesus Christ and my recompense with God. So you hear a little bit of a futility there, right? It's like, I've been sent to preach the gospel, but nobody's listening to me, but I know my reward is the name of Jesus. Verse five, and now Jesus says, he who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring back Jacob to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. It's kind of a tangent here, a little run-on sentence. For I am honored in the eyes of Jesus, and my God has become my strength, he says. So he's setting up, thus says Jesus, but he tells you what Jesus is doing, and that is not destroying, but gathering. All right? So even though it looks like he's destroying, he's not. He's gathering. And here's what he says. He says, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. So here you have God saying to Isaiah, but this is to the Christian church now, this is to you. It's too small a thing to reform St. Paul Lutheran Church. It's too small a thing to reform the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. It's too small a thing to reform the papacy. I want you to convert non-Christians to Christianity. And that is what I send you for. And all the rest of it's going to come along with it because, I mean, he goes on, you know, things like, I know I set up my banner for the peoples. They're going to run to you and lay their children at your feet. It just goes on. I really encourage you. Isaiah 49 and 50, go ahead and take a look at it um, in this next week. We're a little over time, but I'm going to close it here again with um, uh, 50. If you go to page 611, verse 7, it's just so hopeful, and it's going to get us to Romans 8, which is more than conquerors. Okay, so there's a, there's a, a method to all this madness, and it'll show, show itself more and more in the weeks that we go forward here, I hope. But he says, you know, the Lord Jesus, verse 7, page 611, The Lord Jesus helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord Jesus Christ helps me. Who will declare me guilty? You are not alone. In the name of Jesus, 